It is a perpetually intriguing question. To what extent can the affairs of nations be guided by relationships between individuals? If anyone can answer that, it is this week's special guest. Catherine Ashton, the Baroness Ashton of Upholland, was from 2009 to 2014 the European Union's High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, effectively the EU's Foreign Minister. She was indeed the inaugural holder of that office and therefore presented with the responsibility and the freedom to define the role. Ashton's tenure as HRVP, she was also Vice President of the European Commission, placed her at the centre of several diplomatic crises. Anxious negotiations between Serbia and Kosovo, the colossal upheavals of the Arab Spring, the astonishing cat herding that brought the Iran nuclear deal into being, and the Ukrainian revolution, which Russia would, eventually, monstrously and absurdly, perceive as reason for launching Europe's biggest war for 80 years. Along the way, Ashton dealt personally with prime ministers, presidents and other potentates, very much including the current president of Russia. Ashton recalls these encounters in the memoir, And Then What? Inside Stories of 21st Century Diplomacy. How much of human history still gets decided by whether a couple of individuals happen to get on? How can the diplomat encourage clenched fists to shake hands? And what does one discuss at dinner with Vladimir Putin? This is The Foreign Desk. There's no doubt when you think about how people work together and how you actually get resolution to a problem, that if you can find people or if you have the opportunity to work with people who you can get on with to the extent that you can have a sort of relationship in terms of the issue that you're dealing with, doesn't mean you have to like them or agree with anything that they're doing. Almost by definition, if you're sitting across a room negotiating, it's with people who are not your friends. But you've got to feel that there's a kind of common sense of direction. We're going to try and solve this problem. And an element of that has to be the chemistry that exists. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Catherine Ashton, welcome to the show. And let's begin with the title of your book, And Then What? Does that reflect a belief on your part that diplomacy is less often about solving problems than it is about finding a way to manage them? I think quite a lot of the time we do that. We manage a situation, we try and make it so it doesn't get any worse. And we don't necessarily have solutions or at least quick solutions. And then what came about because I used to ask the question all the time. And then what? Okay, we'll do this. And then what? And it seemed to me that we didn't have the opportunity in diplomacy because of the way that events come at you to think longer term. What are we going to do not just this year and next year for this problem? What are we going to do in 10 years? What's it going to look like in 15 years? How will we solve it? How will we stop it getting worse? How will we stop it returning? And when you think about all of the issues that we have today, many of which began at the time period that I refer to in the book, we're still really having to think about, well, how are we going to resolve this now? But also, how are we going to make sure that these are not problems that we're still facing in a decade? 
Because that's what the book does very well, I think, is give some sense of the absolute relentless barrage of what comes at you when you occupy a position like the one you did. It is, in that sense, something of a corrective to the conspiracy theory view of the world, as if, as if anybody would have time amid all this to construct some overarching apparatus of control. But it goes right back to the start of it. And I do want to ask you about how bewildered you felt at the start of your job. You were first of all quite surprised to find yourself offered it, and then you find yourself having to design the role and everything around it basically from the ground up, including choosing the furniture and designing the food court. And then there's this glorious moment where somebody sort of seems to pop their head round the office door and go, oh, and also this deal with Iran over nuclear stuff, that's yours. It was very much like that. Now, that's partly my own fault (laughs) because I was so sure that there would be a former foreign minister would come into this job. It was the first time that these things had been brought together and that there were lots of people who I was sure would want the job. And I was certainly, in my own mind, not the person that you would instantly think of. I often say it's a bit like when you read the book and in your mind you've got a picture of what the person looks like in the main character. (laughs) Then you watch the movie and it's the wrong actor. And you think, well, that's gosh, what's that about? I sort of felt a bit like that, that somehow I wasn't what anyone expected, least of all me. And so I hadn't done the homework that you would do if you were kind of applying for a job or looking for a job. And so a lot of the things that came at me at the very beginning were in part because I simply didn't know the breadth and the scope of the role that I had. I knew it in theory, but I didn't really know what was going to happen. And certainly having to negotiate the Iranian nuclear deal was not something I'd picked up would be mine. Was that any sense, any kind of advantage that perhaps you weren't beholden to convention, established wisdom, that kind of thing? I'm, I'm just trying to get some sense of the extraordinary bravado it must have required to insert yourself into those situations. So I'd been the trade commissioner mm. and I was the first woman to hold that role. And we'd been successful in completing the agreement with South Korea. We'd opened the negotiations with Canada. I'd travelled a lot to China. i dealt with disputes with the US. So there's an element of that kind of work that feeds into foreign policy. Mm-hmm. I was quite well known in the capitals of Europe because I'd been talking to different industries. Foreign ministers would often talk to me about trade issues. In some cases, they carried trade as part of their portfolio. So there were elements of it that were quite familiar. And I did enjoy meeting people and the traveling that went alongside that. It was about changing from the specifics of trade and the detail of trade into the broader questions of foreign policy and Europe's relationship with the rest of the world. And so I had some experience. And I'd also been a politician leading the House of Lords where You're always working in a minority, so you're always building coalitions and alliances, negotiating your way through. All of those skills kind of came to the fore and I think held me in some reasonable stead to get things done. Nevertheless, did you feel like it was a jump into a whole other world? You do write, very frankly, in the introduction to the book of 
not really enjoying it in many respects, being very uncomfortable with the additional scrutiny that certainly the role attracted. You write, in fact, rather poignantly, given some of the not unpleasant locations that you got to go to, that you resolved never to be photographed on a beach or by a swimming pool. Absolutely right. Well, we all know that today when everybody is a journalist and a photographer, that the problem is you can be thousands of miles away from a crisis that suddenly happens and there's the photograph of you enjoying yourself even though you don't even know what's happened and it's very easy to kind of put those two things together and end up with people feeling you're not taking it seriously so it mattered hugely to me not to put myself in that position in the context where people were very unsure about my capability with good reason I was unknown and where you know that for some parts of the press, or indeed just for some people, that that would be something that they would find difficult or they would find offensive that you were doing something that looked like you were enjoying yourself. So I very deliberately said, wherever I go, because I did go to some very nice locations, (laughs) wherever I go, I'm not going to do anything that means there could be a photograph of me even just walking on a beach. So it was quite nice when I finally did, five years later. The interesting thing about the book, or one of the interesting things about the book, is that it becomes kind of a meditation on the degree to which personal interactions, the degree to which two people in a particular room at a particular time happen to get on or not, can have you know resonant effects on, on the lives of many millions. Does it feel like that to you, or do you think that it doesn't actually matter? So there's no doubt when you think about how people work together and how you actually get resolution to a problem, that if you can find people or if you have the opportunity to work with people who you can get on with to the extent that you can have a sort of relationship in terms of the issue that you're dealing with, doesn't mean you have to like them or agree with anything that they're doing. Almost by definition, if you're sitting across a room negotiating, it's with people who are not your friends. But you've got to feel that there's a kind of common sense of direction. We're going to try and solve this problem. And an element of that has to be the chemistry that exists. When I brought the two prime ministers of Serbia and Kosovo together, they were the same age they'd never met. They were both really uncomfortable coming into a room together. And the whole relationship that they could talk about for hundreds of years previously was of people who hated each other. It was visceral, not as individuals, but as people who'd lived or trying to live side by side and had all of these conflicts and challenges, particularly for the Kosovo people. And in that hour of putting them together, you saw these two people find enough common ground in terms of the ability to talk to each other to be able to begin a conversation. And that's all I needed was that I was quite sure after 60 minutes that I could bring them together again and we just might, with a bit of luck, get somewhere. And indeed we did. And within a very short period of time, they had huge differences and things could get very heated and very difficult. But there was the ability to understand that the future of the people, the future generations of both their countries depended on their willingness to try and find a way through the problems. 
There's a couple of aspects to that conversation with Dacic and Thaci, which I do want to come back to, because there's some lessons there, I think, for how these things can be conducted. But I want to ask, and it's the obvious one to ask about, because he is the person whose internal machinations have vexed the planet most these last 15 months or so. But you have the unusual experience of having spoken to President Putin of Russia in both a professional and personal capacity. And I'm trying to think of a more rarefied way to ask this question, but I'm just going to go with it. What is he actually like? Can you have a conversation with Vladimir Putin? It's so interesting because of all the people I've ever met, without exception, when I talk to people, anyone, friends, relatives, people talk to, (laughs) he's the one. And it's so interesting. And it is because people find him a sort of enigma and a very challenging character. So let's begin with him as a person. The first thing I always say is, unlike other people who, when you meet them, they're shorter or taller than you thought they were going to be, he's the same size. (laughs) And that matters because often there are people who are very different. He's the size you think he's going to be. And he doesn't have piercing blue eyes. He does have blue eyes. He's somebody who very quickly, you realize in any room, is in control. And it's like going into a room where if you go to a party, you pick out the host, not because they're doing anything exceptional, but because of how everybody else behaves in the room Mm. around them. When you're talking with him, he appears often not to be really listening. If you're having dinner with him or whatever, he'll be eating and, you know, looking at what's around him and so on. But he doesn't miss anything that's being said. So if there's a particular point that he wants to raise out of maybe you've given a five or six minute contribution, he'll find the thing he wants in your contribution and he will raise it. But the most overarching thing I've discovered about him is that his interest is only as far as it's interest for him. He's not interested in what you need out of this conversation or this relationship. So his relationship with Europe mattered only in so far as it affected Russia. So you knew that if we were of no importance for the future or not of any interest, that he would simply move on to something else. But with Putin, or I guess with any other interlocutor, what I'm interested in is how you manage the temper of the discussions, especially if you are there as a mediator. And this is where I want to come back to those conversations you oversaw between Hashim Thaci and David Sadacic, respectively, at the time, the prime ministers of Kosovo and Serbia. Obviously, I can see or at least can imagine that patience is probably key. But does there come a point Like, for example, when they are having these interminable semantic arguments over the meaning of the phrase on behalf of, that you want to take a a head in either hand and and bang them firmly together. Well, that particular issue was the Kosovars who were particularly concerned about the use of on behalf of, which they interpreted to invest power into the subject, which happened to be a group of mayors of the area to the north of Kosovo. And I still, to this day, don't really understand why it became such a thing. But yes, I mean, you... you, You've summed up hundreds of years of attitudes (laughs) to the Balkans right there, I think. (laughs) So you have, you know, 14 hours of conversation that has sort of painstakingly taken you somewhere. And at the last minute, you'll suddenly run into a problem that you've got absolutely no idea where it's come from. Sometimes you know it's not really come from anywhere. It's come from a fear of actually agreeing something. That 
is not unusual in negotiations, as you would expect. Mm. But other times, it's something that's completely, in your view, impossible to see why you would hold up an agreement that is going to be so beneficial for the sake of something that seems to be irrelevant and unimportant. And part of that is having to understand that history, culture, language, feelings, emotions and pain are all wrapped up in sometimes a phrase or a couple of words that don't mean much to you but mean everything or are reminiscent of something else completely. So you can never be sure why things have happened, but you've just got to find a way through it. The specific question, do you really get cross and kind of think, I've had enough of this, (laughs) quite frequently, quite frequently. I found at times that it was almost impossible to just sit there for another moment without saying to them, you know, just go home, I've had enough of this. (laughs) I wanted to ask as well how difficult it is to keep a check on your own motivations, perhaps, as a diplomat, whether you have wandered over that line at any point. And it's a fairly thin and wavy one between realism and cynicism. I'm thinking in particular of the extraordinary chapter in which you meet the elected president of Egypt, Mohamed Morsi, in extremely straightened circumstances by that point in his career. You are part of those voices trying to persuade him that it's probably in everybody's best interests at this point if he just winds it in and accepts the fact that he's out of a job. But nevertheless, do you still have a voice in your head saying, but he is the elected president of Egypt, in fact, the first ever elected president of Egypt, and even if he's not terribly good, which he wasn't, but nevertheless, should we be trying to help him? I think In those circumstances, I take you back a few days or a few weeks Mm. that you could almost taste the atmosphere in Cairo. This was a country on the brink of something terrible. We had petitions with 20 million signatures calling for action. All the opposition parties were furious at what he was doing in terms of the changes he was trying to make to the law, the control he was trying to seize the way that he had failed to address any of the basic problems that Egypt had, especially economic ones. And I was really worried, and I was visiting very frequently, that this country could fall into civil war. I knew something had to happen. And indeed, the last thing I'd said to him in the presidential palace, which was the time I'd seen him before I saw him in Locked Up, was, it's not enough to be elected, Mr. President, it's what you do with it. You know, the idea that just because people have won an election, that gives them the right to do nothing or the right to cause chaos, I think is something we have to be very cautious of accepting because you can't just say, well, we'll just wait for five years till the next election and and that'll be fine. I think there have to be the checks and balances and there weren't any. There weren't the checks and balances, the power of the parliament or anything that was going to stop what looked like a dangerous slide into a combination of his own ideology and apathy at the same time. When I saw him again, locked up in the shed, he said to me, do you remember what you said to me at that time? And I recalled it, you know, that it's not enough. So when he said, how is Cairo? What do you think? I said, it's Cairo's fine. Everything's, you know, working as it should. I know that's not what you want to hear. Your supporters are out in force and I appreciate and understand that you have been the democratically elected president. But as I told you then, this can't go on. 
And so the best thing you could do is make sure that your supporters do not end up in trouble, do not end up with the police feeling they've got to move against them. They need to go home, but they need to become part of the broader democratic process. And it's all part of thinking further and deeper about what democracy is. It's not just an election. I call it the cherry on the icing on the cake. (laughs) It's about all of those interwoven aspects of life, from a free media to the judicial system that works, police officers that work for you, the way in which people learn about politics and have the chance to make real choices, party political broadcasts, all the things that we take for granted are born of, you know, decades of that interwoven approach that means democracy can function. So when people kind of strive for democracy, they think, want an election. And of course, and that's crucial and critical, but it's not enough. So when you elect somebody on the back of that dramatic change, if you end up with someone who sees it in an entirely different way, it's arguable whether you've really fulfilled the dream of what democracy is for so many people. But at a moment like that, is there or or should there be perhaps any self-consciousness on the part of someone in your position? And I'm I'm sure you've heard variations on this pushback that you are representing the European Union. You are a British diplomat traveling to a country in the Middle East slash Africa, telling them how they should run things. Well, I wouldn't have gone back for that trip if I'd not been asked to by the Egyptian then deputy president, who, along with others, including the US Secretary of State, asked me whether I would go back and actually try and do some mediation, in the broadest sense of that word, between the different groups, because we'd spent a lot of time trying to help and support the democratically elected process. We'd worked closely with everyone from the people in the Arab League, through to the presidential team, to the opposition parties, to other Arab leaders to try and support Egypt in the future. And we'd been very engaged economically too. So we had a particular relationship, I think. So when I was called and asked if I would go back, I said yes, but it had to be on the basis that I would also see what had happened to the former president who had not been seen in public Mm. for weeks and whose family didn't know where he was. I often say to people, who do you think we got hold of first after we left? And it's interesting because, of course, it was his family because I thought they should hear it, that he was okay and well before it was put out on a Twitter feed. That does bring us to the question of British diplomacy generally, and and it's, I guess, Britain's status in the world now. We probably don't need to dwell too long on your thoughts on Brexit. We can probably take a, a rough guess as to what they were. But do you feel that Britain is diminished as a diplomatic force by no longer being a member of the EU? Because, of course, one of the Brexit ideas was that it will liberate Britain to once again bestride the global stage like the Colossus of yore, etc. I always felt that Britain in the Foreign Affairs Council, because I chaired that for Mm. five years, had used the opportunity really well, and this is under different foreign ministers of different political persuasions, to engage on Britain's agenda on foreign policy. So, for example, we were very engaged on Afghanistan and would try and push really hard on making sure that all EU member states were engaged as well, or on issues to do with relationships with the US 
or indeed in other parts of the world where Britain had real interests. So I would argue that Britain was able to amplify its diplomacy and its foreign policy because it could get the echo chamber and it could get 27 other countries supporting it. And of course, the hierarchy or the establishment of the institutions of Brussels and of course me, because I had to go with whatever the policy was of all countries knitted together in what we call conclusions, which were kind of statements, but gave me my brief. So Britain was able to do that really successfully. And equally, we were able to use Britain in conjunction with other foreign ministers often to go around the world in groups or on their own and represent everyone. And that, I think, is a very particular kind of ability to not just be your own nation, but represent a continent the biggest trading bloc in the world, the strongest economic power if it only knew it. You know, Britain was able to do that. And so you can look at it now and say, well, that's gone. So how far is Britain able to use what resources it has to be able to get the support of others? It's got NATO. It's got the UN, arguably. It's got the G7, the G20. There are other formats. But the thing about some of those formats is that they are, well, I call them tankers or yachts. <laughs> so the UN and the EU and NATO are tankers. They're not just based on a particular problem or an issue that people come together for. They're based on values and ideals and ideas. And they're long-term and they're big and they're heavy and they move slowly and they're hard to manoeuvre and turn. But they just keep going, rust and barnacles and all. <laughs> And then you have yachts, and the yachts are the coalitions that come together around a particular subject, topic, issue, the friends of, the coalition for. And they flit about, they're really fast, they can move quickly, they can get things done, because they're not weighed down by the underpinning of values and ideals. They're simply there to do a job. But when the wind drops, they can't do anything. (laughs) And after a while, they have to go home to port. And I think the problem is we're kind of moving in Britain to using more of the yachts and not enough recognition that we really ought to look after the tankers. There's a recurring phrase in your book where you describe yourself as the only woman in the picture, which you you very frequently were at assorted diplomatic conclaves. It does prompt what I hope doesn't come across as a glib or a hack question because it is one asked out of sincere curiosity because I wonder about this a lot. But do women, do you think, go about the business of diplomacy fundamentally differently? If there were more women in positions of that height, would things be notably different? So the best team in diplomacy is men and women together. And that's because our lives are different. Our experiences are different. We have cultural and other reasons why that's true. And when you put the mixture together, it's fantastic because you see the different usage of our styles and abilities in different ways. It's true as well that the response you get is different. I think for the two prime ministers of Serbia and Kosovo, having a woman in the room meant there were perhaps two and a half egos rather than three. <laughs> but they certainly were not trying to vie with me. You know, I was completely different in that sense. And I think there were moments when being a woman made a little bit of difference to how they approach things. And I think with the discussions with Iran, but also discussions with the six countries that I had to pull together the common view 
with my colleagues. You know, there are ways in which you manage a room or manage a conversation that are a bit different. But in any country, anywhere in the world, I always used to say the same thing. How do you think you can have a successful nation if you waste 50% of the talent? Because in that talent will be people who can do things differently, better, maybe not as well, but differently again, and who can contribute. Why should diplomacy be any different? And just one final question, and again, it's one raised by the book and the descriptions of the extraordinarily pressurised and difficult situations you find yourself in in various rooms with various potentates. When you emerge from those rooms and you're just trying to go about your day-to-day life, how annoyed do you allow yourself to get with be they journalists, be they random yahoos on the internet, who've got, you know, a solid 140 characters worth of ideas about how Israel and Palestine could be fixed in 20 minutes. There are lots of people who would write to me and tell me this is what I ought to do. (laughs) And there were a lot of people who would tell me what I ought to do, but I noticed that when they were in office, they hadn't done it, which I also found quite interesting. There's a wealth of good ideas out there as well. So I Mm. don't want to be mean to people who've genuinely thought about things. I don't think I ever really got annoyed about that because some of the issues that we were dealing with and still are are very complicated and difficult. Their histories are really challenging. They require people to make massive leaps of faith or to make the kind of strategic decision that is almost guaranteed to ensure that they will not end up being prime minister or president next time. And that's always a big challenge for leaders. You know, they've got there, they finally got in the job, they've got the support, and then you ask them to do something that, by definition, a lot of people are going to hate because it takes on that immediate problem. And the solution, however much you want to make it as good as possible, is either long-term or is going to offend some people. And you can see them having to calculate if they do this and lose and the next person comes in and says, well, that was stupid, I'm not doing that. They will have wasted the opportunity to do other things that might have been good for the country, in their eyes at least. So why would they do it? So when you find those rare politicians or leaders who are willing to do something to actually risk in order to give a better life to their people, it's quite phenomenal. Catherine Ashton, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. That's it for this episode of the Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for the Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces the Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.